From Peak to Peninsula is a podcast about all things Hong Kong and a place where I discover with you more about what makes it such a unique and special place. Hello, I'm Susie and welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me on From Peak to Peninsula, where today we'll be looking at our first Hong Kong true crime case. Despite being one of the most densely populated places in the world, Hong Kong has one of the lowest murder rates in the world per capita. But when they do occur, it is frequently of a highly sensational nature and often very brutal. Listener discretion is advised for this episode as there will be graphic descriptions of violence. One other side note I want to mention just before I begin. So I just want to explain a little bit about Chinese name order. In many Asian countries where there are Chinese influences, like Japan, Korea and Vietnam, the family name is given first, followed by the given name. So for example, for the director Wong Kar Wai, that means his family name or surname is Wong. Kar Wai is his given name. With that in mind, I'll be primarily using family names or surnames when referring to the people in today's show. The case I'll be looking at today is the disappearance and death of Wong Kar Moi. Wong Kar Moi, a petite 16-year-old, standing only 4 foot 9 or just shy of 1.5 metres tall, weighing 40 kilograms or 88 pounds, was reported missing on the 29th of April 2008 by her parents, whom she'd lived with in an apartment in Taipo in the New Territories. They reported that the last time they had seen their daughter was leaving their apartment on the 26th of April. She was wearing a black top and matching trousers and carrying a gold-coloured bag. They didn't know where she was going and she hadn't told anywhere else where she was going. She was never seen again. Ten days after Wong was reported missing on the 6th of May 2008, police received a phone call regarding her disappearance. The caller had contacted the police because he had become concerned over a series of phone calls he had got from one of his friends, a 24-year-old man called Ding Kaitai. I will refer to him as Ding for purposes of the, the show. He had called his friend repeatedly detailing how he had killed and dismembered someone, specifically naming Wong Gamoy. Police responded quickly, with Ting being apprehended at his residence and arrested on charges in connection with Wong's murder on the same day as the police received the tip-off. The suspect quickly confessed to the police to killing her in a drug-fueled haze after meeting her online a few weeks previously where she was offering her services on adult chat rooms and dating forums as a compensated dating girl. I will explain more about what compensating dating is in just a moment. The killing was believed to have taken place at Ting's rented flat in Samsoi Bowl, a working-class, down-at-heel neighbourhood in Kowloon on April the 27th the day after the teenager was last seen. So before I explain a little bit more about compensated dating, let's have a look at who Wang Gamui was. She was born in Hunan province in December 1991 and had one older sister. Her mother married her stepfather in 1994 when she was three years old and in 1999 when she was eight years old Her entire family relocated to Hong Kong while she was sent to a boarding school in Dongguan province. She would eventually join her family in Hong Kong in 2005 when she was 14, 
They all lived together in an apartment in Taipo in the New Territories. Wong was a very bright student. Records from the high school she attended in Taipo shows that she was a prefect who also volunteered at the school library. But despite achieving top grades and attaining several scholarships, and considered by many as a student of great potential, she kept mainly to herself and didn't have very many friends at school. It was apparent that there were some obvious difficulties settling into her new life in Hong Kong. Her home life was fraught, and she didn't get on with her stepfather, who was at 64 years old, considerably older than her mum, whom she loved dearly, and who she felt was hard done by by her stepfather. Wong had always wanted to be able to support the family financially, be able to pay her way like her older sister, so that her, their 38-year-old mother, a rag-and-bone trader, could have a better life. Wong decided that the only way to achieve this was to leave school and find a full-time job. Records show that Wong officially left school in January 2008, just a few short months before she went missing. The South China Morning Post quoted the vice-principal of Wong's school as saying that she was a bright, helpful and outstanding student and that the school had tried to persuade her not to quit her studies. After leaving school, she took a few jobs, including working in fast food retail and shop assistant roles, but none of them lasted long. Wong was anxious to make some fast money and decided that in order to do that, she'd become a model. This dream was however dashed after she was scammed out of 50,000 Hong Kong dollars, which at the time was 6,415 American dollars, by a fraudulent modelling agency. Finding herself in debt and desperate, she was seriously limited in her options. When a friend from her school introduced her to the somewhat murky world of compensated dating. So what is compensated dating? Here's a quick overview for context. Enjo kosai is a Japanese expression which literally means assistance relationship and is commonly known as compensating dating, which is the practice where young attractive women exchange their companionship for money or luxury gifts. The phenomenon originated in and was exclusive to Japan until the 1990s, where it spread to other countries like Taiwan, South Korea and Hong Kong. When people talk about compensated dating in Hong Kong, they usually mean teenage students providing companionship or in many cases sexual favours in exchange for money or gifts that help improve their standard of living. There are similarities to the Western concept of having a sugar daddy, but compensating dating differs in that while sugar daddies are mainly mature men of a certain age, there is no age exclusivity in compensated dating. So how does it work? Girls find potential companions online, in adult chat rooms or dating forums, or via specific apps, and arrange to meet. If the first meeting is successful, the arrangement may become regular. It's common practice for a girl to have several companionships with different men at the same time. The most obvious attraction for the girls is the promise of quick easy money and luxury items that most girls can't afford to buy. A description from a non-government organisation in the South China Morning Post told of a girl who was shopping and found something she wanted to buy, but she didn't have enough money. 
She immediately found a client online and with a few hours got enough money to buy what she wanted. In a society where media puts a very high emphasis on having the next high-end fashion item, it's too easy for the girls to use this method to get fast, easy money. With the rise of social media, it's now easier than ever for teenagers to access compensated dating sites, adult chat forums and dating sites without any need for a middleman or a pimp, and they can access their clients directly by phone or by following up on comments posted on their Instagram accounts. Contrary to popular belief, the original concept of compensated dating does not involve sexual activity. Girls are able to reject any advances that, are, that they are not comfortable with. However, it is not uncommon that the longer the companionship lasts, the harder it is to resist the advances and soon the girls will eventually give in. Many girls never plan to do it for long, as it's certainly not without its risks. The South China Morning Post article I mentioned earlier describes how many were forced to perform sexual favours they didn't want to, were raped or worse. Others also unknowingly had their interactions filmed, which the client would then threaten to post on their Facebook page or even print photos and distribute them around the school that the girl attended, or blackmail them into more sexual acts. There's also plenty of evidence to suggest that it is not exclusively limited to teenagers, as some Hong Kong women, many of those who already have jobs and careers, are sometimes choosing compensated dating as a means to supplement their income. Now, I mentioned before, this is just a very brief overview of compensated dating, the practice of which is certainly a divisive and polarising one, with some saying it's just jumped up glorified sex work some saying it's bad parenting and a sign of more significant problems within our society, while some feminist groups argue that compensated dating is an empowering choice, as women reject the social norms and restrictions tagged to their gender, thus allowing themselves to be more financially independent. Now that we have a better understanding as to what Wong was involved in, Let's look at the events that led up to Wong meeting Ting and what happened in the following hours up to her death. After leaving school, Wong wasted no time and by April 2008 she was active on several adult chat rooms and dating forums. She was known as Kimmy online. In some instances it's been Kiki but mostly Kimmy. Subsequent searches of her computer and mobile phone records made after she was reported missing showed that the last person to contact her was Ting, who had first contacted her at around 9am on April the 27th, requesting her to come to his apartment at around noon later that day. Prior to meeting with Ting, Wong had left another client named Wu, who had met with Wong on the evening of the 26th. Wu made himself known to the police after Wong's photo was circulated as part of the missing persons report and realised that he was one of the last people to see her alive that night. Wu told police that they had met, did not have sexual relations with her, but had stayed the night with her in a hotel. He had paid her $2,000, Hong Kong dollars, that's 256 American dollars, for her time and parted on good terms on the morning of the 27th. With that part of the timeline clarified, he was eventually eliminated from the investigation. Following the tip-off to the police, 
Ting became the only person of interest. But who was Ding Kaitai? Very little can be found about Ding's background and life up until the murder, but what I could find about his early life was vague and hard to verify. He was born in 1984. He came from a large family of five from the mainland city of Guangzhou, but I couldn't find any mention of who his two siblings were or who his father was. Ting had been involved in a car accident at the age of five, where he witnessed the death of his mother and sustained severe head injuries and quite possibly PTSD. Ting received treatment uh, for all of these conditions from the age of six, and it seems that he was severely affected after these events. His relationship with his father was also strained, and became even more so when his father remarried his stepmother, who he also didn't get along with. He was known to have struggled at school with his studies, and he was bullied, which eventually led to him dropping out of school. He started getting involved with low-level triad street gangs, drugs, and other small-time criminal behaviour that landed him a short stint in a reform school for boys at the age of 15. Before his arrest for murder, Ting had previously been known to the police, but only as a petty criminal, selling bootleg DVDs and counterfeit goods. At the time of his arrest, the 24-year-old was employed as a shop worker, selling toys with a side hustle selling counterfeit cigarettes. So basically, he was a low-level, small-time triad with a bit of a temper, a ketamine habit, and who liked procuring sex workers. But with no significant previous criminal history of violence, aggravated or otherwise. He lived alone in his tiny subdivided flat on the second floor of the Yan Fat building in Samsoy Bowl, where he moved to when he was 23, the year before he met Wong. Previous to that, he had spent a stint in rehab for his pill habit, attending a clinic from 2005 until around late 2006. Obviously, the rehab didn't stick, as by 2008, he had relapsed back to his addictive behaviour of pills and sex workers. Now, one thing to bear in mind is that the only information that we have about the last hours of Wong's life come from primarily from Ting's several accounts that he gave to the police after his arrest, which only occurred after his friend, Se-Yin Dak, called the police after the missing persons report became public. In the video interview with police just after his arrest, Ting described how Wong and he had met in an adult chat room just a week or so earlier in mid-April. When asked about the events leading up to Wong's death, Ting recounted how he had taken ecstasy and ketamine at a disco the night before on the 26th and couldn't sleep when he returned home at around 9am on the 27th. He vaguely remembered calling Wong and asking her to come up to the small subdivided flat to have sex with him agreeing to pay her 1500 Hong Kong dollars, which is 192 American dollars, for an hour's service, a price they had agreed upon in previous conversations online. He claimed that he had passed out after having sex with her, and after waking up some time later, he found her dead, but with no memory of what happened. He told police that although he was not exactly clear about how Wong died, he was very clear about what he did next saying that upon seeing Wong's body, he panicked and went about disposing of the body. Now a quick reminder here that this is going to be quite graphic for about a minute.
During the disposal process, he would go on to make two trips to nearby Setgit Bay Market, just a few minutes' walk away, to get rubbish bags and phone boxes, to purchase a chopping board and a knife, and where he dumped and mixed the teenager's larger broken-up bones in a basket of animal offal at a butcher's shop in the market. This part of the confession, once made public, was the cause of great consternation and unease amongst the residents of the neighbourhood, not to mention the numerous eateries around the market, as bones were frequently used for soups and stocks on a daily basis. Ting went on to tell the police that he had beheaded the victim and carried her head, which was wrapped in her own clothes, and weighted with a brick in a plastic bag, then took the bus for approximately 35 minutes to Kowloon City Pier, where he threw Wong's head into the sea. He later explained to investigators that he had chosen public transport because there was less chance of him being stopped and searched. After disposing of Wong's head and returning home, Ting took 3,400 Hong Kong dollars, which is 436 American dollars, from Wong's wallet, disposed of the tools, mattress and the teenager's belongings. He also made an attempt to clean up the blood spatter in the apartment as best as he could, but this was to prove unsuccessful, as we'll see in a moment. Computer records would later reveal that on the same evening, presumably after the clean-up, Ting actually returned to the comp compensating dating sites to resume his search for more dates. So I'll just let that sink in for a moment. It boggles my mind how anyone could calmly resume looking for dates to bring home for sex a mere few hours after callously disposing of the body parts of a 16-year-old girl. When asked by investigators why he had confessed to the killing, he allegedly burst into tears and said, quote, I felt sorry for the girl. I don't know her and I have no reason to kill her. I don't know why I've done this. I'm very sorry to her. She has not offended me, unquote. As police arrived on the 6th of May at the address the tipster had provided to apprehend him, they couldn't ignore the foul stench emanating from the barely 100-foot square, that's 9.2 square metres, subdivided flat. Some of the officers had to light cigarettes to try to cover the miasma of odour that pervaded the entire floor. Despite the obvious absence of a body, the flecks of dried blood flound all over the tiny flat made it clear to investigators that something had happened here. Remember how I mentioned earlier how Ting had done a shoddy job of cleaning up? Well, I, I can't imagine how bad the stench was if it was still stinky some ten days after the incident occurred. The search for any evidence that could link Ting to Wong and the hunt for Wong's remains began in earnest. Searches of the suspect's apartment in the Yanfat building and surrounding areas led to the entire internal sewage system of the building being dismantled and examined. This included the toilet bowl in the suspect's apartment, where it was discovered to show blood traces eventually confirmed to be Wong's, as well as the external drainage pipes, in an attempt to retrieve any evidence that supported Ting's confession. Blood spatter in Ting's apartment and bloody fingerprints that were found on a CD in a player were found to be a match for Wong's, with the fingerprint that had transferred the blood being a positive match for Ting. 
He later confirmed that just after decapitated Wong, he had placed the CD in the player to listen to as he went about his hideous task, unknowingly leaving damning blood evidence of his crime in the process. Now, if you're curious as to what kind of music is the suitable type to dismember bodies to, the CD was the 2000 album Beyond the Storm by Darude, the first track being Sandstorm, which will now and forever be tainted in my eyes. Experts also noted that the spray pattern left by the blood strongly indicated that there was a high possibility that one could still have been alive at the time Ting began to dispose of her body. On May the 9th, three days after Ting's arrest and confession, sediment containing human tissue was extracted from the underground sewer pipe connected to where Ting's flat was located. DNA tests on the nine fragments of tissue they were able to retrieve indicated that they were highly likely to have come from Wong. No other traces were found. Extensive searches of the sea surrounding Kowloon City Pier for Wong's head were similarly fruitless. Ting was officially charged with Wong's murder on the 10th of May, four days after his arrest. He was immediately arrested on suspicion of murder, a charge he initially denied, as he had had no intention of killing her, could not be sure how she had died, or even be sure that he had actually killed her. Whilst denying the murder charge, he was, however, cooperative throughout the entire investigation, readily confessing in great, great detail, as we have heard, as to how he disposed of her body, and even going as far as taking the police to the location at Shekit May Market, where he disposed of Wong's bones. Armed with blood evidence and Ting's confession, prosecutors moved quickly to bring Ting to trial, which opened just 14 months later, in July in 2009. Nearly all of the information I found and uh, records from the trial I've managed to find from the South China Morning Post archives. At the opening of the trial, Prosecutor Derek Lai told the court that Ting had told police how he had woken up in a chair at his dining table to find Wong lying dead on his bed with blood oozing from her mouth. Mr Lai continued, saying Ting had told police at first that he had thrown the whole body into the sea, but changed his story later on and said that he'd chopped the body into small pieces and flushed them down the toilet and had only dumped the head into the sea. One of the investigating officers told the court that telephone records confirmed that Wong was the last person contacted by Ting on his mobile phone on April the 27th. Police also found contact records and evidence that Wong was active on several adult chat forums and dating sites, and this confirmed her connection with Ting. Wong's family had no idea that she had left school or that she was working as a compensated dating girl. The only statement that we have from her mother was given a few days after the discovery of Wong's remains, stating, Even now, I am finding it very hard to accept that this has happened, and finding it even harder to believe that my daughter would go and become a prostitute. The victim's older sister told the court that Wong had no history of drinking or drug taking, and that she had last seen her little sister leaving their home on the night of April the 26th. Her parents reported their daughter missing on April the 29th. At first they were not too concerned about her staying out, as they knew she had a boyfriend that she'd spent time with, and she always came home. 
It wasn't until they realised that she hadn't even been in contact with her boyfriend that her parents reported her missing. They had no way to know that by the time they had reported her missing, she was already dead. Ting's friend, Mr Z, who phoned, made the phone call to the police, also gave evidence at the trial. He recounted how Ting had joined him at a disco after midnight on April the 26th, where he had had beer, taken a tablet of ecstasy and snorted some ketamine, as was his usual habit. Mr C testified that he had received three phone calls on the night of the 27th from Ting, testifying that, quote, Ting said he had killed someone. He told me he had strangled and dismembered a girl. He also said the girl had told him before that she wanted to die very much, and he did not know why he just strangled her when they had sex, unquote. Mr. C had been friends with Ting since primary school and found it very difficult to accept that he had actually killed anyone. He described his friend as an introvert who wanted to be left alone and could easily lose his temper if people did anything against him. He went on to say Ting told him that after he had dismembered the body, he had torn the face off the severed head because he didn't want to look at it. He spoke of his reaction to Ting's repeated confessions. Quote, I did not know whether to believe it or not when Ting told me about how he dismembered the body of the girl. I had a week of sleepless nights before I decided to report it to the police, he said, adding that he recalled how Ting's voice had sounded nervous on the night of the 27th. So he explained that he had read online news about Wong going missing that night, and that he had sought advice from a policeman friend before he filed the police report on May the 6th. His tip-off to the police, coupled with a trace on Ting's telephone records, led them to his subdivided apartment on the same day the report was filed. Detective Sergeant Tam Kai Tai told the court that telephone records confirmed that Wong was indeed the last person contacted on Ting's mobile phone on April the 27th and that he was the last person to contact her. Assessments into Ting's mental health were carried out and results were presented in court. Psychiatrist Dr Robin Ho told the court that after interviewing Ting she did not find any evidence of a psychotic condition. Dr Ho said Ting told her that all his former girlfriends were mainlanders and that he had frequently visited sex workers since he was about 17 years old. He said that he had only known the victim for a week and although he had visited compensated dating websites for a few years, he had never used the service before. Dr Ho said Ting told her he had been drinking and taking drugs since he was a teenager. He told Dr Ho that he had snorted ketamine after returning home on the morning of April the 27th and was acutely intoxicated when he met Wong at about noon. If he was telling the truth, she said, he may have suffered from a condition known as automatism, which is a total loss of control and memory under the influence of drugs. However, she went on to say that since he had been able to recall and tell someone how he had strangled the girl, it was quite unlikely that he had suffered from the condition. Now, it must be noted here that despite Ting having been very cooperative during the entire investigation, there were reports that he's changed his version of events up to seven times, with his confession varying wildly.
His first story that he gave to the police was that Wong was a no-show, despite agreeing to do so. Police obviously weren't having any of this. There was plenty of evidence to indicate that she had been in the apartment, and most of it being blood evidence. So he changed his story. This time, he said that he did have sex with her, but he was high on pills, blacked out after sex, and woke to find her dead. This is a familiar version, but another version that he gave is a slight variation on the last. This time, saying that they were both incredibly high on pills at the time. And after sex, she had allegedly said to him that she wanted to die. Believing this to be a cue for some kinky sex, he had strangled her, but had no clear memory of killing her. All of these versions ended up with him waking up in a chair and finding her on the bed with blood coming out of her mouth. So we are left with no real clear timeline of events, only that at the end of all of these different versions that he gave, he woke up and found Wong seemingly dead. And of course, it appears that he was definitely clear about how he disposed of her body. But as to the exact nature of how Wong died, was it murder? An accidental drug overdose, perhaps? A sex game gone wrong? Did he fall on her when he blacked out and accidentally smother her? Which is a popular theory, by the way. Or was it just a terrible combination of all of these factors somehow? Unfortunately, we will never know. Ting was, by his own admission, high as a kite at the time, and indeed most of the time at the time of the killing. And perhaps by changing his story so many times, he was trying to find a way to avoid the murder charge by muddying the waters and to delay the charge's investigation. On the 27th of July in 2009, after a six-day trial and a mere three hours of deliberation, a High Court jury found a sober and drug-free Ting unanimously guilty of murder and jailed for life. Mr Justice Alan Wright said what Ting had done to the body was, quote, almost the worst one could possibly imagine. It would be of no exaggeration to describe your conduct as barbaric, the judge continued. You've killed a 16-year-old girl and you disposed of her body in such a despicable way. Ting admitted to the additional charge of preventing the lawful burial of a corpse, for which he was sentenced to four years to be served concurrently with the life sentence. Now, life sentence in Hong Kong is very simply put, is whatever the presiding judge deems appropriate. When determining the minimum sentence, the presiding judge would consider the serious of the original offences, the deterrent effect, and consider correctional and psychological reports. Prisoners are entitled to repeal their terms all the way up to the Court of Final Appeal and argue for a shorter sentence. In 2012, Ting requested to repeal the decision, claiming that he was not guilty by reason of diminished responsibility, but his request was denied. A request for the filing of a second appeal was put forward by Ting in 2013, where he represented himself, this time claiming that due to the ongoing issues with drugs that he was having, he was very messed up at the time of the killing. He explained that he had been out of rehab for a year or so before the incident, and therefore his drug tolerance was lowered, and that made him less control of his actions, 
um, when he was high at the time of the murder. So he essentially claiming once again he couldn't be responsible due to being under the influence at the time. The request to file was denied with the court, countering his argument on the grounds that even under the influence of drugs, he was still able to recall his actions, recount them to another party repeatedly, and therefore the murder charge stood. Interviews with Ting in 2014 from Stanley Prison, where he is incarcerated, describe him as an intelligent and rational person who spends his day learning guitar and reading. He is still sober and gives the impression that being in prison has done him good, describing how he has learned to tame his temper. Quote, I always had a short fuse. As soon as I encountered anyone who bothered me, I would let my fists do the talking. Anything could be solved with a good beating. It didn't matter who was in the right or who was wrong, but ultimately the one who is sorry is me. Being inside has given me a chance to think a lot of things through. It's taught me that prison is its own community, just like on the outside. Here there are people from all walks of life, triads, dealers, university graduates, rapists, killers like me. We all have to live in very close quarters to each other, so learning to become more patient of other people and their beliefs and the importance of having others around me who encourage me to use my words, not my fists, to solve problems. The interviews also said that he didn't want to talk about Wangamoy anymore, as this was just disrespectful to her parents, and they deserved their privacy. Away from the spectre of addiction, it does appear that for all intents and purposes, he appears to show quite a lot of remorse for his crime. In 2015, the events of the case were brought into the spotlight once more with the release of a movie, Port of Call. FarEastFilm.com provides a brief summary of the movie. Director Philip Jung continues to combine experimental approaches with mainstream cinema in Port of Call, an unsettling work inspired by a shocking Hong Kong crime. The film's plot sees Hunan girl Wang Jiamei arriving in Hong Kong in 2009 via the mainland city of Dongguan to join her mother and sister in their public housing flat. Soon, at the age of 16, she leaves school to work in small-time modelling at a McDonald's before getting involved in compensated dating, a form of prostitution in which clients are solicited online. Port of Call swept the board at the 35th Hong Kong Film Festivals in 2016, including Best Screenplay, Best Actor and Actress and Best Cinematography. Now, I'm a movie buff, I like my movies, but I haven't seen this one yet. And I have a feeling if I'm going to do so, I won't be doing it alone. I know what happens, I just don't know if I could stomach watching a movie dramatisation of it. So, that's it. That's the case of the tragic and senseless death of Wang Gamoy. Unfortunately, dismemberment after murder is a common feature when reading up on murder cases from Hong Kong. It's not a signature of Hong Kong murderers as such, but it's very much more a necessity. In, in this particular case, living in a barely 10 metre square subdivided flat, with extremely close quarters with other people around you in a packed apartment building just a few hundred metres away from the local neighbourhood wet market, 
means there is very little chance of going unnoticed when trying to get rid of a whole body. It was purely by chance that his flatmate was in China attending a family wedding at the time the incident occurred. Otherwise, perhaps the killing and the horrific stench would have been reported sooner. So, that's all for today. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Or as they say in Hong Kong, You've been listening to From Pete to Peninsula. This podcast was hosted by me, Susie, and published in association with the Anchor app. If you enjoyed today's show, then head over to Google Play, Spotify, and other podcast catchers where you can rate and subscribe, or perhaps just tell a friend. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can email me at frompeaktopeninsula at gmail.com. That's from Pete to Peninsula's all one word. Or you can leave a message with me on the Anchor app. I've been your host, Susie. See you on the next episode.